HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Fine Diners Over 40, a members-only dinner club for singles and couples who enjoy dining at highly rated restaurants and sharing the experience with others. Learn more at finedinersover40.com. That's finedinersover40.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. I am very excited today to have as my guest someone who can drink up to 700 different wines a week. Now, I'm sure she doesn't drink all of those bottles or glasses, but she is a wine expert. Jordan Salcido, welcome to Speaking Broadly. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It is an enormous honor to be here. So you have probably drunk wines on lists that Jordan has touched if you like anything in the Momofuku Empire because she is now the director of special wine special projects. Can't wait to hear what that actually is. And if you've had the pleasure of drinking Ramona, which is a wine spritz is like wine in a can. She has completely changed an entire category. Those words that you could never say, like wine cooler, um, without sort of eye rolling or um, clutching your stomach. Jordan makes an extraordinary wine cooler. So I'm so happy to talk to you about your, your journey, which I feel like I have seen not from the very beginning, but from some very early days. I feel like it was pretty much the very beginning. I remember meeting you in Aspen in 2005 in June, right before I moved back to New York to start cooking at Danielle. And it was like, I mean, it was, it was like larger than life and you were incredibly kind, which I couldn't believe because... <laughs> Because this is, you know, you're running this massive, incredibly important weekend and you were just incredibly kind and very um, curious and very supportive. And um, anyway, I remember vividly when we met. I mean, we could go on for the vivid recollections. My most vivid recollection of Jordan, aside from actually drinking the best wine in the world with you, um, is when you quieted my... um, 
airsick child for an unconscionable amount of time uh, between Aspen and Denver and then Denver and New York. So you are also very, very <laughs> kind. You totally had my back. But when I, when I think about uh, watching you on that, that journey, I, we met when you, uh, you had completed a certain amount of schooling, right? You had gotten uh, a BA in philosophy and literature, and then you went on to Johnson & Wales in Denver. And so, of course, it made sense that the next thing that you were going to do was to cook. And... Only, of course, at Danielle, which was amazing as an extern. Um, how did you go from that extern experience to creating this remarkable life in wine? Oh, my goodness. Um, I feel like, it, first of all, it was it was meeting wonderful people who gave me a shot. And so um, Danielle was one of those people. I got to cook in his kitchen. Um, and I remember the first time I had a conversation with him, it was... I was at that point wrapping the bath. I was the bass wrapper. Was, oh my God, the yeah. bass wrapper. <laughs> um, I have to just pause here. I had the most embarrassing bass experience yesterday. Oh no. I've never cooked a whole fish and I like posted on Instagram, you know, are you supposed to take off the gills? But I was actually pointing to the fins. Oh, that was really embarrassing. But in any case, so you were the bass wrapper. I was the you bass were, wrapper. You were wrapping with potatoes, though. Yes, exactly. You uh, you know this dish. Okay, so uh, this was it was the signature dish for a number of years, and uh, you know the 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 poissonnier would would butcher it in this lovely rectangle, and then at some point hours later during service, the bass wrapper would would dart from the canapé station to this funny, weird station right behind the fish cook where there was like a big prosciutto slicer that we used to slice these potatoes and it had to be exactly this one kind of starchy Idaho potato and you needed to brush it exactly with the right amount of clarified butter and you had to like weave these strips a certain way. And it was hard to be good at it, but after a few days of being very bad at it, I became good at it, and, and that was nice. And I happened to have gone to this cookbook shop on my day off called Bonnie Slotnick Cookbooks. That was such a great cookbook yes. store. Yes. Yeah. And there great was... Vintage and current cookbooks. And she moved it, right? So it's still around, but in a different location? Or I can't, I'm not exa- sure exactly where she is, but her that old location, which has such great food juju is now a tea company which is an amazing tea shop oh good to know okay i need to go visit um you'd love it i do like tea um okay so that uh, anyway so i had this book and it happened to have a recipe in it for a red mullet with potato scales and danielle had come back from the lounge and i was uh, new at this job and I was grateful to be there. And so I would stay late and help clean up. And, um, and the, the benefit of that was that there would always be these, um, slices of apple lasagna left on the pass that were left over from what, whatever the, the kitchen, the pastry kitchen did not serve that night. Um, and so I went up to go and get some apple lasagna before walking home. And Danielle comes in and he says, who are you? And what's this book? And do you like wine? (laughs) (laughs) Those are very good questions. Questions all in a row. <laughs> exactly. And he had a bottle of 
1978 Jaboulet La Chapelle because oh those were the kind of wines that were just opened and he had been having a glass with somebody in the lounge and uh, and it was going to go down the drain. And so uh, he poured me a glass and we started and he, he opens this cookbook. He starts flipping through it and he sees this red mullet dish from Paul Bocuse that happened to be the dish that had inspired this black bass popiette. And so, um, yeah, and that, that was the moment where I think where he, because he meets so many exter- externs, and I think that for him was a moment like, all right, this person cares enough to stay late, and she has this cookbook, and now she's the person wrapping my bass, and <laughs> the, the bass have looked good the last few days, so, so, and she likes wine, okay, and, and he just took note of that, and uh, that resulted in me getting to go to be part of the team that cooked at the La Palais de Neige, in um, in Aspen in January of 2006. And will you describe, because that, that La Palais is extraordinary. Yes, and this was a teeny-weeny one, which I think was so, teeny-weeny. That's not yeah, a term. Yeah, that's English. Very small. That means very, very small. It's very small compared to the, the La Palais now that are, you know, hundreds of people. Um, there were, you know, a, a dozen or a couple of dozen collectors there, and there were six winemakers in town from Burgundy. And Danielle and his, uh, at the time, chef de cuisine of DB Bistro, Olivier, um, and I was there, and then uh, I think a couple other people. Um, but that, for me, was the moment of, you know, you're, you're there, you're tasting these wines, and I had had extraordinary wines before, but this was... Wait, wait, how'd you get to have extraordinary wines? Like, so far, I've got you, like, with philosophy, literature, right, okay. and, you know, <laughs> like, going to Johnson & Wales. No extraordinary wines anywhere. And I happen to know that your grandfather made crappy wine made, in the basement. He made very crappy wine. So, like, so far, I haven't heard anything about all these great wines. Okay, so right at the same time, like right within within one month of the La Palais happening, um, this man, who's now my husband, his name is Robert Bohr, and he and I had started dating. And he oh, was well, that explains yeah, the whole thing. Yes, and he, so he was wooing me. He had a restaurant called Crew, which had this incredible burgundy program, as, as you well know. And, uh, and that was like... I mean, I, I, I really benefited because <laughs> he'd be like, oh, come over after work when you get off the line and I'll open a glass. You know, we can, and he was like, we can just, you know, I need to check in on a couple bottles. <laughs> I really need to know about this woo by wine. So like when he was wooing, like, do you, are there, are there, um, you know, wines of that time that you're like, that, that's the one yeah. where he got me. He got me at. He got me Jambolet. at, got it me was at. 1980 Henri Jaillet Les Brulés from Von Romanet. And it was this, this very storied winemaker who's now, I mean, now with, you know, the Hong Kong auction market, now these wines are not wines that I would have been able to have been wooed with, but it was <laughs> convenient, <laughs> convenient back then. Um, and Jaillet was a figure credited with, so many things that are associated with quality uh, in Burgundy today. So he um, he was a farmer. He was the vineyard manager for a much wealthier, much more well-known estate called Mayo Camusay, also in this very, very famous village of Von Romanet. And Mayo Camusay was, you know, they were busy and they, you know, they outsourced things. And so they outsourced their vineyard management to this, to this farmer. Um, and he ended up just transforming their, their wines. And then he, um, as a gift, he was given 
um, Crow Perrin too. So he it was it's now a Premier Cru vineyard that is that is regarded as his greatest wine. But it used to be a Jer- what a gift. It, yes, it was, and it, it used to be a Jerusalem Jerusalem artichoke garden during (laughs) the war so it was sort of like well there's a crappy piece of land we'll just we'll give it to this guy we'll throw him a bone and then he transformed it into what is now uh one of the probably five most expensive bottles in the world when you can find it um and he passed away in 2006 and so he's obviously not making wine anymore and um, but this was a special vintage, and and the the brulee is is very close to Croparin too. But it's a little bit uh, brulee like a creme brulee. It, it gets baked by the sun because because of the exposure and its positioning on the slopes. And uh, and and Jaye understood how to make a rich, luscious, delicious, fruit filled wine that was also incredibly balanced and. Uh, and elegant and and just delicious. Sometimes I feel like wines are not necessarily delicious, and then people apologize for them by saying, "Oh no, no, this is just very nuanced and delicate, and <laughs> and you have to be very experienced in order to understand the nuance." But but the, I think the genius of Jaye is that no, 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 that's that's complete nonsense. Either a wine is like intuitive, like either there's like a visceral reaction to this deliciousness, or there isn't, and. Um, and I think sometimes that happens in the food world or in or in anything. But Jaye made delicious wines, and he made them out. Of, and and then people understood the power of what he was doing, and he eschewed things like fertilizers and sprays. And he wanted to. He did things like uh, cold fermentation before, um, or cold maceration before. From a number of things he's credited with. So anyway, it was a bottle of Jaye, and that was. Oh, wow, I'm really going off on tangents. And that, that was... <laughs> no, you actually remembered why we're talking about this, <laughs> because this was your woo wine. This was my woo wine. Yeah, and it's it, a great woo wine. It, and I think like one of the things that um, strikes me about it is, of course, you have a remarkable instinct for talent, right? So not only you're a handsome, smart husband who is very, very talented, but for, you know, Jaye being that wine that you instinctively sort of understood. And to me, there's a connection between that and uh, some of the, the jobs that you held in as you made your way through the wine world. So working at 11 Madison Park with um, John Regan, who is I don't know if he's the Jaye of the wine world, but what was that? What was that like? That's a really good way of explaining John. I think John. I mean, John is not an easy boss. John, I, don't, I think you've only chosen difficult ones, actually. And I think like I've never learned more from a boss than John Reagan ever. And he he didn't uh, he didn't accept anything less than his standard of excellence, and he always had a, a reason behind it. Um, and it was always guest experience. So I, and I think he has a certain style that maybe is more, I mean, he's not on the floor now, but he, he's hilarious. I don't know how many people get to know that about him because his table side manner is so formal. Um, or at least it was when we were working at 11 Madison Park. And that was also part of the goal was, to get to turn 11 Madison Park, which was, I think, a two star restaurant when we started, two star in the New York Times, and it was, of course, four star by the time I left. Um, but John said from day one, like, this is the goal and it's going to be hard. 
are you in or are you out? And if you're in, it's really going to require a lot of work and a lot of the time. The goal being excellence. Yeah, the goal being excellence and the goal being four stars from oh. the New York Times. And then, of course, you know, the sort of unwritten goal was, which he ended up getting and I got to be part of that team, was um, the James Beard Award for Exceptional Wine Service. And that, that uh, the, the team won in 2008. And it was just a big deal to be part of that kind of team. And it, I was very grateful for it because... Because John, like, you know, you would work f- the f- service on the floor, but before that, you know, there'd be like a, a wine team meeting and everyone had to come prepared with a different wine from the list that you had researched and that you were going to then share. And so you had basically a seven minute window of time to explain the region, the context, the producer, the vintage and everything. And you just constantly did that. And then there was like every night you had the option of also following up with like three wines or Madeiras or whatever it was in an email and to the rest of the team. So it was constant education, constant learning. He was the one, I remember I was not given permission one year to, I've only not worked the Palais one year and it was like 09, I think, or 08. He was like, you cannot have time off to work the Palais because you do that all the time and you're going to, it was the same weekend as the intro course to the Court of Master Sommeliers. And he's like, if you want your time off, you can, I will grant you <laughs> your time off for this intro course, but not for the Palais. And so I, I ended up, I took the intro course because of that. And I'm so grateful I did because I think that's, that's another style um, and it's another path. And I don't think it's right or wrong, but I think. So wait, what are the two? So there's two paths. I didn't know. Um. But his, so his, so John's pursuit of excellence um, exhibits itself in the people on the floor being deeply, deeply knowledgeable, yeah. committed, yes, and being able to to communicate and sort of engage because once you're that educated, you can actually engage your yes. guests. Yes, and that was one thing he said once, which I think is very, very true. He said, because, you know, we talk a lot about, or in the restaurant industry, confidence on the floor is very important. And I had heard messages before, and, and many people who are very confident have, have given me their perspective, which is, oh, if you're confident, it doesn't matter. You don't have to know about wine. You just have to be confident. And John's take was, no, 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 no. Yes, you do have to be confident and you will be confident if you know about wine. So rather than like fake it till you make it, it's like, no, no, no make it so you don't have to fake it. And <laughs> I like that. Uh, yeah. And it was, I think it was a good, that was, I, I'm glad that I, that I was exposed to that messaging. Um, and then the master, um, master Sam, what was that? Because that um, is not easy. No. Well, not, none of it's easy. As, I mean, I guess as John said, like, it's not easy. But that road for you in this string of really delightful successes, like, that was a lot of work. That has been a lot of work. And it's also something, um, yeah, so I would say, like, when I think about the phrase, like, oh, the journey is more important than the than the destination, I think that for me, at least, that rings very true with that organization. Um, when I started pursuing that path, I didn't know how far I wanted to take it. Um, but I, but I liked, I felt like I had this incredible and rare exposure to 
wines of the world that I that I was very, very privileged to have exposure to um, through dating Robert and then through working on the floor at 11 Madison where we would, you know, my very first night on the floor there was a Screaming Eagle private dinner where it was like every single vintage of Screaming Eagle. And, and whether or not that's your style of wine, it was like that was my introduction to this restaurant group. And then, of course, everything from, I, you know, I've been so lucky to have tasted so many extraordinary wines and and also, you know, working harvest. And that was something I started doing in 2006 in Burgundy. And part of the, part of the tradition there is you get to choose wines from the cellar and then you're, you're tasting the blind with the whole rest of the harvest team or the winery team and you're talking it through. And so just through a various multitude of experiences, I had had a lot of exposure to wines, but none of it was this sort of formal path. And I felt like, I felt like I needed to do that for myself. Like I had had this very cool array of experiences, but I wanted context. And I also felt like it was important for me to have my own credentials. Um, did, did, does that end up, do you still feel that way? Ah, uh, great question. I think what I, I got, to, it's funny actually, because so you had referenced the airplane ride where Sylvie and I got to bond and you had told me at the, I think I was like at this sort of crossroads and you had given me this advice, which is sort of crazy because I think we had maybe had 10 minutes of conversation ever up to that point And I don't, I felt comfortable sharing this with you and you gave me this amazing advice of write down 10 things that you hope to do in the next 10 years. Um, and then, and then that list surfaced recently yeah. <laughs> and, and, and on it was, uh, get to study for and take the master sommelier exam. It wasn't pass the master sommelier exam, which of course has been a goal, but, um, but I think less so now I feel like I passed the two parts that I really wanted to pass and felt like they would be the most challenging. So in 2015, um, which was right after we had opened Co. So we opened Co. in the summer, in the winter of 2014. And then incidentally ended Which up... Which is a Momofuku um, Yes, the yes. Momofuku restaurant. The Momofuku restaurant. Um, the, the tasting menu, and it was it moved to a beautiful location, an extra place in 2014. Um, and another goal had been to be recognized by the James Beard Foundation for a wine program. And, and that happened this year, that, that particular year. And so it was, it was funny because we, we get the national uh, semifinalist nomination for Outstanding Wine Service at Momofuku. Fukuko, and then I took the MS exam, passed blind tasting, passed theory. You're sounding really obnoxious right uh, sorry, now. Sorry, sorry. Well, I'm about to tell you how I failed. Exactly. <laughs> I just, just hold on here because it gets worse. I failed. Just, yeah. I, failed the, I failed the service portion. Uh, Which is shocking, of course, because you just got an award for service and you are exceptional on well, the floor. Well, thank you. So. It, it was funny because it was also uh, the feedback was that it was I didn't seem like myself to the group of people who uh, have never seen me in a restaurant. And it, it was just it was like, okay, this is like tough, tough advice to sort of like really figure out what I'm going to do with this advice to make myself better at my job. Um, and then the next week I found out I was pregnant with our son, Henry. That's a, quite the trifecta. It was the <laughs> trifecta. And that is when Ramona came onto the scene because uh, it was like, all right, it's time for change. But but back to the, the journey thing. I think like... I think studying for that and the people that you meet along the way and then the information that, that you end up sort of encountering and trying to memorize um, is part of the journey that, I, that I'm glad, I'm really grateful that I got to go on that journey. Okay, so I, uh, one question before we 
take a break. You have worked for super smart, super difficult, um, all men to the best of my knowledge. Um, how do you do it? Because I bet there's a lot of listeners who, you know, would probably work for very difficult, um, hopefully brilliant. Oh my goodness. People. Well, I feel like I, I was very lucky to be in a position where, where I could learn so much from, from smart people. I think advice. So humility, like is it, is it key humility? Is it doggedness? Is it determination? Like what is it that allows you to not be cut or bounced or broken by these? Oh my goodness. I think, you know, I think it's having for me and everyone is it's different. And thank you for saying that. Um, I think, I was given good advice actually by Robert. Um, and he said when I, I was brand new as a cook at Danielle and he said, you know, if I were you, like I would, I would do whatever you need to do. Like he said two things. He said, what you put in is what you get out of this industry. And I imagine that translates to any industry. And so that was always important. Um, and I think I, I had the benefit of coming from, as you mentioned, Johnson Wales in Denver, which is, um, which, which was really great for me because it's a place where you're taught to work. And I think my my parents had tried to instill that as well. And so working was something that I was very much prepared to do. And I think the other piece of advice that, that I was given by Robert was if I were you, I would try to just make sure you're going to get a, a good letter of recommendation when you leave, when you leave wherever you are, like you're now in a, you're now at Danielle, which was the, the three, it was three Michelin stars. It was four New York Times stars. And Danielle is so compassionate and enthusiastic about the people that he takes under his wing. And so I just wanted to work as hard as I could and do as good of a job as I could and be as useful as I could because I felt like that would be the way to stand out. So back then it was different than, you know, it, but it's like, it's the staying late. It's the going to, going in on your, you know, it's, it's all of those things. At least that was helpful for me. And then knowing at Danielle, it was different because I didn't know what my end goal was. I just knew that it was important to like understand as much as I could and that that would, I hoped that that would lead to like the next path and that ended up being wine. Um, it, yeah. And with that, because we're going to get to more about wine and wine that you make. So you're not just, you know, pouring everybody else's uh, incredible wines, but you're making great wines. So we will be right back. Stay with us. Come for the food, stay for the friends. Fine Diners Over 40 is a members-only dinner club for singles and couples who enjoy dining at highly rated restaurants and sharing the experience with others. Fine Diners Over 40 appreciate food as art, as cultural adventure, as scientific experiment, and best of all, food as an opportunity to take pleasure in the company of others. Join them for culinary and social adventures in New York and Seattle. Food may be the main attraction at Fine Diners Over 40 events, but it is the friendly and interesting members who carry the day. Join them for an evening of fine dining, fun, and stimulating conversation. While enjoying innovative tasting menus by first-rate chefs, you'll talk movies, theater, pets, sports, travel, and more. Epicurus said it best, We should look for someone to eat and drink with before looking for something to eat and drink. 
Learn more at finedinersover40.com. That's finedinersover40.com. Hello, welcome back to Speaking Broadly. This is Dana Cowan, your host, and today I'm here with Jordan Salcido. Jordan, it's been such a pleasure just talking through some of the amazing experiences in uh, wine that you've had. When you talk about the extraordinary wines and your exposure to these incredible wines because of the places that you've worked, I just wonder, do you ever drink $15 wine? I mean, has that ever been part of your job? Is it ever anything that you, you know, do because you're at the beach? (laughs) Um, I know that, you know, we'll get to the wines that you yourself make, which are at an affordable price point. But tell me, like, what about that? All right. So I think that is one of those benefits of the of the MS exam is, you know, you constantly you're in these tasting groups and, and you have to be responsible for that kind of knowledge as well. And so it's just well-rounded. I think that's... Oh, so you're well-rounded in wine. That's well, good. I don't know if I am, but I, <laughs> <laughs> I think I have been at various points. And I think, well, I think there are also, there are a lot and more and more and more. I think it's very exciting um, to see this sort of onslaught in a good way of, of more affordable. So um, where would you point people um, for affordable wines? Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, all right. So right before the show, we were talking a little bit and the most recent, and and I am not somebody who was, I I didn't love a lot of wines from Spain. I felt like the, the access that we had, even in New York, this most dynamic and diverse wine market, we got a lot of sort of old Rioja and it was all very different variations of like similar estates with similar kind of crianzas or reservas or whatever coming our way. Um, and I think that's changing. So, um, a couple of, so the most recent delicious, interesting, not expensive wine that I had was a Filippa Pata, I think a Quercus, Quercus, um, from Beras, the grape is Baga, uh, headed at Legacy Records and it's on the list there for a half bottle, but it's, it's just, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful, incredibly delightful wine that is not expensive. So it's mostly I'm just delighted to hear that you drink, (laughs) you know, the things that are not, um, Burgundy. So let's talk about the, your journey into winemaking because first, You're such a student, and you're so determined, and as we said, you've had incredible training uh, in the kitchen, in the the dining room, in just tasting so much, and then it turns out, like, deep in your heart, you're really an educator and entrepreneur, you know, and I feel like that was what I saw when you launched Bellis, which was 2011? Yeah, exactly. And uh, what I remember from the time was that you were very interested in, uh, well, you made wines with other people, right? So you weren't at that time going and um, harvesting your own grapes, even though you spent a lot of time at harvest. But you were interested in the the women's piece of the market. Um, How did 
you decide to do Bellis, and um, what did you think about that women's market for wine? Yeah, okay, I think it's such an interesting question, and it continues to be an, an interesting question. Um, some of the things that I, well, I, so with, with Bellis, the goal was, uh, the goal was to be able to deliver wines that had the same integrity as these great wines that I got to work with on the floor at 11 Madison Park every night or or subsequent restaurants, but for a price point that if I were not working on the floor that I that I could afford and that that friends could afford um, or people who weren't collectors. And so it just seemed to me that the sort of similarities um that the things that I that I wanted in wine, um, you know, grapes grown organically without herbicides, pesticides, fungicides, um, small producers. Um, it didn't have to be single vineyard. That wasn't important to me. But the the quality of the land had to be good, as opposed to you know, say like a big flat valley with a bunch of clay or sort of very fertile soil. That's not going to make a wine that's going to be as interesting as something that grows on slopes or on volcanic Who knew? soil. I just learned something. I didn't know the va- I did not know that valleys were bad and not slopes are. Good. I mean, I knew slopes were good, but well, and there are some valleys that are great. Like for example, we make a wine. Um, uh, the Bellis Scopello is a frappato wine from uh, Vittoria in, in Sicily and Vittoria the so the, it's it's quite hilly um, frappato which is like a it's, it's basically like Sicilian Pinot Noir but it grows like right next to Nero Davola frappato tends to grow on the in the valley part Nero Davola grows on the slopes but the but the soil even though it's a valley it's right above so it's a little bit of red iron rich clay above a gigantic bedrock of limestone and so it depends on sort of what is underneath your valley and <laughs> okay not all valleys are not all. <laughs> I didn't mean to get you off the mark here so um so Bellis so Bellis yeah so that and that was the goal and, and I think at first I, we had a friend who had a winery and and he wasn't really a winemaker he was in like finance and bridge and he was sort of like I have this winery but I don't make wine can you guys help and by the way we have these grapes I don't even like what are we going to do with them um and I'd worked harvest there a couple of years and that was where um, it was actually Richard Betts. He happened to be on this trip, and he says, "Why? I know you want to make your wine in Burgundy, but why don't you open your eyes and look at what's right in front of you? You should start in Italy because you already make wine here, and you know the owner, and you have a bunch of grapes that this owner does not want anything to do with, and you can make a cool wine out of that. And so that was the first vintage. Um, and the idea, I guess the goal was, was, and it was also a lesson in flexibility and also down the line it was a lesson in not being flexible when you don't want to be because you, there are certain things you need to be flexible on uh, so where were you flexible there I was flexible because I, I we ended up making a wine from Montalcino that was mostly Cabernet Sauvignon based there was also Sangiovese it was basically a third Cabernet a third Sangiovese a third Merlot um we did that for one one vintage, and it was a great exercise in getting a product to market and making a label and having an idea and sort of making the pieces happen together. Um, I also remember, like, we, I wasn't sh- sort of sure what we wanted to do with the label. I knew I wanted there to be some kind of education and, and iconography that helped that helped people, uh, helped give people the language that they could then use to to 
identify what they liked or didn't like in a wine. Um, and I think like now I look back on that label and I'm like, hmm, it's not a label. I'm, I don't like looking at that label all the time because too Why many is that? Well, too many people touched it and then it was like no longer a label that I liked or cared about or had ownership of because I gave that all away and I said I don't know about designing wine labels you guys decide and then it sort of became this thing that 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 is not a compelling label and it's gone and you can't find it anymore and, and I think that's a good thing but. <laughs> the lesson being to take control of things yes. even if there, yes. there's something very interesting about uh, and I don't know if it's you know women specific you hear about it being women specific but stepping back and saying, I don't actually know how to, to do that. You guys go ahead. Yep. And then someone does something, and you're like, that kind of sucks, but totally. okay. Right. And uh, and I think, you know, we all need to sort of stop that before yes. it goes too far. Um, I think it feels so like well it said. went a little bit too far in the label. It did. The back no, label. It did, yes, yes. And I think, and then we, re, we rebranded, and we now we have friends who are artists, and they, they paint the, the labels for the Bellis wines and it's and now those are labels that I love looking at and it's it's just a different experience but I think so what about the your audience because when you launched you had an audience in mind yes okay so the audience that I had in mind right and back to the sort of some of the interesting research that came up while while starting Bellis was that men and women tend to buy wine for different reasons and they want different things out of a bottle and they treat it differently. So a lot of times, and of course these are generalizations, but many times men buy wine based on a point score or a score that it's given or if their friend thinks that it's a good wine and they trust their friend who knows about wine and is a wine expert. And so and and wine is very much a commodity. So that is that is one way in which men often think about wine whereas women want a wine that they think tastes good and they don't care about price. They would prefer it to be less expensive as opposed to more expensive and the point is opening it and drinking it and sharing a glass. So it's much more communal and it's much more an experience to share with friends and it is not a commodity or a collectible item and and taste and price point are more important. Um, and so, yes, so those were things that I also identified with. And it was just funny to see, because I felt that, I mean, and I was working in a world and, and have a lot of experience working in a world in which wine is both this experience and also a commodity. And it's just interesting to see that uh, from so many different points of view. Um, but I, I decided that Bellis was not to be a commodity. And yet that shouldn't mean that it should not still taste delicious still be grown from organically grown grapes, still support small local farmers and come from an interesting part of the world and be able to take you as a consumer on a journey to wherever that, that bottle of wine came from. I think that the notion of wine as an experience rather than something that, you know, ticks a box because there's a lot of box ticking in the world of wine. Yes. Um, you know, oh, I, ha oh, I had that or I have that in my cellar. Um, that's, you know one type of person and the more experiential type of uh, person that's a, just another way to go and I feel like Ramona which um, we were about to talk about before the break is very solidly uh, launched in the experiential lifestyle zone and um, just a little shout out for Heritage here because at 100 Bogart on Valentine's Day we're serving your Ramona yes. wine spritz which is fantastic so anyone out there listening it's an 
awesome opportunity to have some great chocolate and some uh, great Ramona and hang out with some really fun people at uh, 100 Go uh, Bogart. So, um, Ramona, how did Ramona come to be? Like, so you had this really elevated experience in wine. You still do. Uh, and then, you know, you had, it's almost like Bellis was your experimentation phase because it taught you a lot about the business of wine. Um, and then when you chose to really go rock solid into the business, you ended up at a, a wine experience that's light, effervescent, accessible, and will be sold um, at retail stores soon. Yes, yes. Well, it is sold at retail stores, but more of them. Exactly. So it will be in all Whole Foods nationwide that sell wine starting in May, end of May. That's just extraordinary. It's, Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> That's really huge. Thank you. We found out right before Christmas, so it was a very, very good Christmas gift. And incidentally, like the day that we had decided we were going to raise another round of financing, and so it was like great news to be able to bring to... But um, no, I think to your point, um, yes, it was very, it's, I just, I felt like the moment in which Bella's or Ramona was born was, um, I decided to do it the day, it was probably the, I think it was actually the day that I found out I was pregnant, which happened to be the same week that we were nominated for semifinalist and that I failed the master sommelier exam, which I really, I knew that like if I had one shot to do it, it was going to be that year. Um, and, and then it was sort of like everything, all this timing, all like I had my, my vision of like how things were going to happen and the timeline in which they were going to happen. And then that was all turned on its head. And, uh, and I just decided, all right, this is enough. It's time for a pause. It's time for a reset. Um, the, what do I want to drink most of the time in moments where my husband's opening a beer or I want three margaritas, but then I would be flat on my face. (laughs) Why isn't there something? It just felt like there was a, an obvious need for something irreverent and fun and portable, but also high quality. And and there were these sort of irreverent things or portable things, and, and none of them are things that I'm interested in consuming. And so I just felt like, all right, am I the only one that feels this way? And also I'm well positioned to, to do this. I had contacts who make delicious Sicilian organic wine that is less expensive and higher quality than than grapes elsewhere. And I, you know, had enough experience sort of toying around with recipes. And so it was it was just it just felt like the thing that needed to happen. And I felt like I was racing against the clock because of motherhood. It was like, all right, if this doesn't happen now, who knows if it will ever happen. So it's happening. But why is that? Like why I'm fascinated by the timing. First of all, to have an idea when you find out you're pregnant, I feel like that would actually be consuming enough to think, (laughs) to push all ideas outside of your head. Um, So what was it about that? Like had it been brewing or were you just sort of fed up by not passing that one piece or, um, or you just, you wanted to own your own thing and stop being controlled by outside forces. Like what was that? I think it was all of those things and being pregnant was incredibly empowering in all these ways. It was terrifying, but it was also like, all right, like I, if I'm making a human, I might as well make a wine brand. Yeah. Or like I'm creating something. I might as well like create 
Like just like, yeah, the idea had been in my head for a little while, but it just, it felt like the timing was important. Like why isn't this thing, why doesn't this thing exist? And if it doesn't exist now, it should, and I can do it. And I'm, and I, and it just felt like, all right, the time is now. The time is now. And and what about all the obstacles, right? Because there's so many obstacles. I don't, I don't even know the story of Ramona coming to the shelves the way I might know some of the your other backstories but there have to have been obstacles right oh yeah um so what were they and how did you like power through them when either you were pregnant or you had a newborn um you have this amazing husband you like you, ha- you have a life and this is a a single product it's not like you were doing it with a team right and now now we have a team and that makes life so it's it's just amazing how and it is such a good reminder of how team matters we have an incredible director of marketing her name's Kate Newhouse and she's awesome and Jerry has joined our team as well and and team makes such a difference um I would say, let's see. So there's also this good Danny Meyer quote, and I can't remember where he said this, but it was something like, you know, anyone who has a business who thinks that the goal is to not have problems is wrong because problems are constant and don't even think of them as problems because they're going to like come at, you're going to have multitudes of these, of these challenges every day. So it's, it's really about problem solving and that's your job as a business owner. So it's just constantly thinking about, okay, this is the vision. All right, wait, we have to pivot. Or so I would say, yeah, I mean, you just knowing that, knowing that nothing is going to go. And I guess this is where the restaurant industry comes in really handy because, you know, you can have your your list of who's coming in that night and and then like the plumbing system breaks or <laughs> um, the wine that this very important table has ordered is corked or somebody binned it the wrong way and actually they don't even have, you don't have that wine. So it's constantly it's constantly being as prepared as you can, but also being flexible and thinking, thinking you want to think three steps ahead. This was a big John Reagan thing, like his thing. I remember he would say, you know, when we used to have to walk back through the kitchen all the way to the old wine cellar and, and it was like a two minute walk. I think it was like three and a half minutes by the time you got, you walked to the cellar, opened the thing, got your bottle of wine and walked back. So he's like, all right, that's three minutes of wasted time that you are not going to waste. You walk in with your key so that you're not fumbling for your key. You have your key ready, you walk through the dining room and you be thinking about all of the tables on the dining room floor. So you need to know that table 42 is halfway done with their bottle of champagne and table 43 just ordered spritzes. So you need to go over and you have to check in with them and get their wine order and and you know that table 47 is almost done with their bottle of um, Colgan and you're going to need to offer them another bottle uh, as soon as you've done the other two things. So you're constantly prioritizing and I think it's it's a challenge and I will not say that I'm great at it all the time every single day, but at least it's in the back of my head. Like, yeah, there are always a lot of things going on and you just need to work as hard as you can to prioritize and be flexible and work with whatever comes your way because nothing is going to be Nothing is going to look as clean as it does on like an organized piece of paper of the sort of evening flow chart. <laughs> I love and I think that what you just described, I think, is great for absolutely any industry. I mean, people aren't walking through restaurants, but you're certainly walking through your to do list. Yes. And if you don't know, you know, at any one moment, every single thing, yes. where it stands, how it could go wrong and, you know, be ready to sort of pivot and fix. Yes. Um, then you're sort of in a tricky place. I 
I've always known this about you. You're always very generous to your um, mentors or the people who you've learned from. You are a font of quotes because you listen so hard and you take the advice so much to heart. And and yet over the last you know many years, you've gone from you're still a student because I think you will always be a student, but you've gone from student to teacher and you now have this business and you have your team. So, and you're a woman boss, which you don't have a role model for. So how is it that you are, um, what is it that has become your mantra? What is the thing that you're teaching people that you feel like you've just absorbed all these lessons from all these other people? You put them in the Jordan filter and you come out with something different. Like what is it from the Jordan filter? Like what is it that moves you and how do you motivate people? Oh goodness. Um, I mean, I I would say I'm, I'm, this is all new, so we will see (laughs) looking back down the years, but, um, I try to be a boss that I would want to have. Um, I think I've had, bosses with all sorts of personality types. And I think, you know, the thing that I believe to be true is that you don't have, I I think we've seen, and we're, I was reading the Uma Thurman article last night, the uh, Maureen Dowd profile, and it, it was so heart wrenching and horrifying. And and I've now read a few sort of subsequent follow-up pieces. and, And there was, I think somebody was quoting, um, or talking about George Clooney as a boss. And it was a how he how he just he has made a decision that he's he's just not a I guess I'm I'm sort of I'm wandering here. The point I'm trying to make is that the Weinstein bully boss is not a model that I that I believe is true. It's not the kind of person that I am or want to be. I want to be able to look back at myself as a boss and say, all right, I, w- I was fair, um, and I and I prioritized our team and our business. Um, I think the. I think this is something that actually is from a Will Gidara packet that he gave out at his wedding from his father, but you have to prioritize the mission and the team. And if you're prioritizing the mission, you're also prioritizing the team because if you're not prioritizing the mission, nobody's going to have a job in a year. So that that's not good. Um, but I think hiring people that... Uh, hiring great people and then trusting them um, is very important. I try to do that. I feel very lucky that we have a great team right now. Um, I don't know. I, we're so new at this. <laughs> uh-huh. um, and how hard is it to go from having it be your own thing, just you, to uh, you know having this team that, of course, you know, you're delighted to work with. Yeah. No, and I think we're still in a, a small enough team that like I can have a handle on all of the things that are going on. And I think that that's, that's important. We're still this baby, baby company and brand. Um, but yeah, um, let's see. Wait, the question, how? how? Well, in, trans, in transforming from it's all about everything you yeah. can do and you can control. Right? Yes. That's a very comforting feeling to someone like you who can absolutely check a checklist yeah. and have vision at the same time unusual skills. And then you have to give some of that away. Totally. And I think, all right, so maybe back to like two questions ago, I think the key is trust. And I want to create an environment in which I have built trust and where I have also earned trust. And I think when you have a team that trusts one another, then you can, then you can scale uh, because you're all, you all trust that you all have one another's back and you all understand or are going to prioritize what's best for the company. And, and I think also listening to everyone's opinion, but also at the end of the day, I do have final say. And so if I, if we, if, you know, if I want to do something and because I feel like there's a good reason behind it, then then that's what we do. But I do want to make sure that we listen to, to all points of view before, before moving forward and having that final say. So at the end of speaking broadly, I try to bring 
bring awareness to even more amazing women because one of the things at, at this moment it becomes clear that we just need um, more voices. Yes. And so whose voice would you, do you feel needs to be heard who maybe isn't heard enough? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, she's sort of heard a lot, but she needs to be heard a lot more. I think Missy Robbins, I, I think she, she's been on the... I love Missy. I don't know um, if she's been on yet. I don't think she has. But she's she's just, I think when you look at a company and a program in a restaurant that feels safe when you walk in. I would say, like, I have the same feeling when I walk into Lilia and sit down that I also had recently. It was my very first time going, but I went to Via Carota recently. I love Via Carota. And I, I don't know Rita, but I love her restaurants. And I feel like that same sort of, like, our server was incredibly professional and and unfailingly charming and I just wanted to listen to her talk about the appetizers because she <laughs> she was so mellifluous and, and excited about them and it wasn't uh, unprofessional or uh, I, don't, I don't know she just like you could just tell that those people feel safe where they work and that they want to do they want to produce an incredible product so I would say um, Rita maybe would be Rita, another Rita Sodi yes and uh, Missy Robbins two amazing Italian restaurants that uh chefs at restaurants that are built in the these women's visions where they really do cook right they're still there yes. their personality is really present yes. they have a strong team really delicious food and they um have avoided sort of the the pitfalls of being trendy though they're very popular yes which is um that's, that can be a trick right because yes. you, you're not trendy uh you might lack for an audience, and they don't because they're they are so warm, so personable, and their spaces um, are just like them. Yes. Well, with that, Jordan, thank you so much for joining me on Speaking Broadly. If people want to find um, Ramona Wines or Bellas or you, how do they find you and them? Uh, okay, so if you go to drinkramona.com, then you can find a list of everywhere that we're available. Bellas Wines is bellaswines.com is our Bellas Wines website, which also has a list of everywhere we're available. Um, Instagram, you can also, I don't want to encourage Instagram messages because I feel like I'm so bad at email already. It's just <laughs> <laughs> no more communication. No more, I know, but but email. I think Instagram is amazing the way that it does seem to connect us all, um, sort of constantly. So uh, at Jordan Salcedo, at Bellis Wines, at Drink Ramona, um, and it's great to follow Jordan's travels, which we haven't really talked about today. But uh, Jordan travels around the world to extraordinary wine countries following her journeys is an education in itself. And you know where to find me F at FW Scout uh, on Twitter, Instagram. You can find me at DB Cowan on Facebook. And come back next week for another amazing show. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? 
rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.